hello. Welcome to the Travis Stork Show. I am Dr. Travis Stork, your host, and I'm excited to share with you a podcast that was taped many months ago, well before COVID was even a pandemic. And my guest is someone that I respect a ton. Her name is Emily Oster. And Emily wrote two wonderful books that my wife and I are huge fans of, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet. And these are books that take an economics-based, scientifically uh, studied, data-driven approach to pregnancy and parenting during early childhood and basically look at what are the things that you can do to... Hey, it's raining. This podcast, I don't know if you all can hear that, but it literally just started pouring. So we're going to make it rain in this podcast today. But what I love about it is it really delves into the science of what are the things that you can do to optimize pregnancy? What are things that you can do to optimize having a happy baby? And again, the expecting better focuses on pregnancy. Crib sheet focuses on uh, parenting during early childhood. I've read both of them, and I'm sure I will reread Crib Sheet as our son um, evolves over the days and weeks after birth. But she is an economics professor at Brown. Um, she went to Harvard. She is obviously quite bright. I'm a, I have to say, I'm an old school econ guy. I was a math economics major at Duke, and yet it has been so many years. Since uh, since I've been in college, so it's it's fun to talk to Emily during this interview because it reminds me of why it's so important when we make decisions to really look at the data. And what's interesting as a math econ guy, I've always, without even realizing it, done a lot of these analyses that she does. And um, the other cool thing about this podcast is. This is, again, way back when, when I was just starting to record a few of these podcasts, and uh, we surprised my my wife, Paris. She doesn't even know that we're recording, and she joins in for a few questions of her own. Enjoy the podcast, and what's really great about it, and I mean this, you don't have to be an expectant parent or a new parent to appreciate a lot of the advice that Emily offers, and what my hope is by the end of this, anyone who listens to it will start thinking about how they can apply her lessons in their own life, whether it's a parenting decision, a pregnancy-related decision, or any other decision. And that certainly applies right now as we evolve in this pandemic, and we're all making risk-reward choices each and every day of our lives. Enjoy the podcast. So true story, Emily. Background on me is I, I was a math economics major and then I was an actuary before I became a doctor. So oh I've, my God. <laughs> I've always, I've, I've always <laughs> had uh, numbers in my life and I use them all the time to make decisions. So you are an economist for anyone listening. And what's really cool, my best friend from residency, Dr. Jeff Hayden, as our gift when we got pregnant, sent us your book, Expecting Better. And that was, it, it was one of my, the, the first gifts that we got. That's awesome. I tell him, thank you. <laughs> well, and what's, what's funny is my wife and I, we fought over the book for the first couple of nights <laughs> because one night it would be on her stand. Like, 
hey, honey, can I, can I read Expecting Better tonight? And it went back and forth. And the reason I want to applaud you is because you do such a good job taking numbers and making them relatable. And it's a little bit what I, I feel like I do on the doctors, which is taking complex decisions and hopefully breaking them down so people can understand them. So I, I applaud you because when people are fighting over reading a book that has subtle economics in it, good for you. Yeah, living the dream. No, I mean, th- that is that is very nice. I'm very happy to hear that. I, I think I sort of share your view that, that that's a piece of it that's really fun for me is to try to think about how to explain these slightly subtle, complicated things to people in a way that they can understand them and, and ideally, you know, use them and also enjoy reading it. So I'm glad it works for you. <laughs> and another true confession, even though our, our baby is not due, due until early June, already have crib sheet going through that as well. So gotta be ready. Gotta be ready. <laughs> gotta be ready. And Hey, for, for anyone listening, I promise you don't have to be pregnant or expecting a child or have a young child to get something out of this. Because I do want to ask you, Emily, about a lot of ways in which you use your uh, mastery of economics to make decisions in life that, that go beyond just being, hopefully, uh, someone who makes smart decisions during pregnancy, during early childhood as a parent. But I have to ask you really quickly, because you're, you're in a house that uh, has another economist, right? Your husband's an economist. Yes, he is. So we all in medicine, we always talk about houses that have a uh, two partners who are both in medicine and everyone always wants to know how much people talk medicine if they're married to a doctor. How often do you two talk economics? A lot. I mean, I think there's like two pieces of that. So one is that we work in the same department. So we talk a lot about like stuff that is happening at work. Um, but we also talk a lot about economics. We actually both have lately been working on um, econometrics, on like statistical methods. And so we talk a lot about statistical methods uh, and different econometric problems. All right. Well, then after the podcast, I may talk to you a little more about that because I know most people um, get scared when they talk about when you talk about numbers. And I don't think my wife, Paris, would mind me saying that she's intimidated uh, by math. <laughs> and she's always said that's her, her least favorite subject. But I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about when you sat down to write this book, it was because you had a lot of questions about the standard dogma out there for pregnancy. And you found, you know, you found out that there are so many myths that even in medicine, we tell people as dogmatically as possible, this is what you must do during your pregnancy. So you set out to bust some of these myths or maybe confirm other things that you're told to do. Not to put you on the spot, but would you tell me what you think maybe the three biggest myths are that you found? That, that every pregnant woman is told they must do or must not do? Yeah. So I think, you know, one, um, one thing is coffee. This is what like sort of comes up all the time. The idea that like you shouldn't have any coffee. And this is actually one of them that I think is a little hard for people to manage because you hear different things. People say, Oh, a little bit's fine. A lot's fine. Like don't have any, 
Um, and so when I, when I dug in, into that one, uh, I think it's pretty clear that at least some coffee is fine and actually probably, you know, more than you, more than you think. Um, this was one that I found, you know, particularly gratifying because I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy coffee. Um, like another one that was kind of a, a really big, um, sort of piece for me was, uh, sort of looking later in pregnancy and realizing, that uh, bed rest, which actually a pretty large share of people are prescribed, so like maybe 20% of, of pregnant women, uh, is actually not uh, recommended for almost any complications. So it's basically very, very, very limited things for which uh, kind of laying down all the time is a good, uh, a good idea. And there's actually some pretty big uh, reasons not, not to do that. Uh, Emily, really quickly, interestingly, one of our good friends uh, recently spent weeks in the hospital on bed rest, and you don't think about all the repercussions of that. You know, that that advice, it's not just the fact that you have to lay there in bed, it's all the things that go along with that and the anxiety and the family itself while you're trying to manage this. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that. So it, it are you saying that if your doctor advises you to go on bed rest, you get a second opinion? Do you challenge your doctor? How, how do you approach that? Do you give yeah, them a copy of your book? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there's like sort of hopefully you have a good relationship with your provider, um, I, I hope. Uh, and so I think the first thing to the first thing that I often tell people to do is just like try to understand why. And sometimes when you ask why, the answer will be like, well, you know, I don't know. It just could be a good idea. And then, you know, there are a few cases where there'll be kind of a more like specific reason, like, okay, you know, the reason is this, and then you can at least evaluate it. So I often think that a lot of the, the value of, of my book, particularly around some of these medical things, is just to like get you to understand a little bit better, like, what does the evidence say? So you can have a more informed conversation, like not to say like many doctors are wrong or the doctor's trying to do the, the wrong thing, but that, that this is kind of puts you a little bit more in the, in the space where you can have that conversation where you're informed and they're informed and you can sort of decide what's, what's the right thing to do. Well, habits in medicine change very slowly. And I'm talking about habits of doctors. And when you go through med school, you've probably heard the saying where they tell you, Half of what you learn will be wrong. The problem is we don't know which half. And you learn these things in med school. And in fairness, some, some practitioners will continue those practices throughout their careers. And it's why I always tell people, if you're not sure and you're not getting the answer you want, it is okay to, to seek a second opinion because if you can't get a rational answer, and getting back to your book, you lay it out in very simplistic terms why you come to these conclusions. And if a doctor can't do that, then I think it's okay to question the advice. And, and I think people are becoming, I, I want people to still respect their doctors. I think that's very yeah. important, but, and there can be two different opinions, one and both of them valid, but I think it's okay to have the conversation. And I think you, you arm particularly women with enough information to have a knowledgeable conversation. And what I see is potentially women going and having these conversations with doctors and potentially even doctors change their practice a little bit based upon these conversations. And that's where 
medicine is so interesting because we hold on to these. I mean, heck, not to go off on a tangent, but look at how many doctors still prescribe antibiotics for viral infections. It's so frustrating, right? It's, a, it's so frustrating. And especially, I don't want to jump ahead, but prescribing it to kids. Who, I know. It has so many side effects and they, and, oh, you know what? It looks like there's a chance that this is, um, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. Let's just, let's just take this antibiotic. It, it, so it's okay if, if we learn nothing else, it's okay to challenge and ask questions. So I, and I, I, I'm glad that you raise that, especially with, with pregnancy, the thing I'm learning and for people who do not know this. I'm expecting a boy early June. And even though I'm a doctor and as an ER doctor, not only is a third of my training in pediatrics, a lot of your patients are kids. And so I've seen a lot of kids and I've seen a lot of pregnant women. But when it's your own (laughs) and you and your (laughs) wife are going through it, you start questioning everything. And even as a doctor, when I read your book, it in Paris as well, my wife, we felt more confident in asking questions. And, you know, so the bed rest, let's move on to maybe another myth that, that is so set in stone that, um, I want to get into mom shaming in a minute, but where maybe you see someone doing it or not doing it and all the others are judging. So I think like the, the sort of in the space of diet uh and and eating stuff i think one that comes up all the time is sushi so i actually ate a lot of sushi when i was pregnant if you eat sushi at a restaurant while you're pregnant people are like you know don't you want like don't you want don't you mean that you want like the egg sushi and you're like no i think that i'll take the, the fish sushi um and you know this is a thing where people it's like on this list of of like forbidden foods uh but actually you know the kind of complications the issues you can have with sushi are you know you can get like any raw food, there's sort of some risk of, uh, of, of salmonella, but that's no worse, uh, during pregnancy than it is other times other than that, you know, it's kind of unpleasant to be vomiting and maybe if you're already, already vomiting. Um, but you know, there's kind of a thing. It's like, you should be normally cautious. You shouldn't eat, as I say in the book, like don't eat a lot of gas station sushi. Uh, but you hey, should probably hey, not do that. Can I, can I jump in, Emily? I would argue don't eat any gas station sushi. Ever. <laughs> no one should ever eat sushi from a gas station, uh, pregnant, pregnant or not. Um, but you know, and this is part of a, a long list of these food food restrictions, where I think that it it behooves people to spend a little bit of time just thinking about kind of well, why are you why are you putting this restriction on? Um, because you know, I, on the one hand, you say, well, like, what's the big deal? But on the other hand, like, why? I don't know. I like sushi. Like, I you know, I would enjoy eating that. And so, and so we, we put some of these things on with this idea that somehow like the, the well-being of the pregnant woman is kind of not very important, uh, and other than the sort of medical stuff. Um, but I think that that, that removes some autonomy from people who are, you know, you're still a person. Well, and I, I think that that's important. And a lot of these concepts do translate to people who are not pregnant as well, but this is, this is going back in time to the night my wife found out she was pregnant. True confession. We were not trying to I see. get pregnant. Having said that, it wasn't, um, we were both well aware that it could happen, but we were actually avoiding that time. Um, 
So I get a frantic call, a voicemail, Travis, can you please call me? And I call her and she had just been out to eat sushi. I was out of town. She had just been out to eat sushi and had a cocktail with the sushi and she got home and I do not know why, but she... I guess she didn't feel great, but it was, and she's like, "Ah, you know, it's just a sushi. Let me just take a pregnancy test. Well, let me take another pregnancy test. So she was calling (laughs) me frantic because I think she went through six of them. Um, And again, Uh I'm gone. I call her and she was, she wasn't excited because she was like, oh my gosh, I just ate sushi. And I just had a drink, and I'm, and and she may kill me for sharing this, but that got back to the guilt. So I I said, Paris, yeah. it's it's okay. It's you know most of this again. These she she even in her own mind she she knew she had heard like oh my gosh a su- you eat sushi and you are killing your baby or if you have a drink before you know you're pregnant. You're killing your baby. And yeah. there's so much guilt there. And I'm like, Paris, no, you can be excited. <laughs> You're a healthy person overall. You had some sushi and you had a cocktail with your friends and it's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this stuff really like it sort of gets into this, uh, into the, into the zeitgeist, into sort of like, and it really colors people's, people's experiences in a way that like that should be like an incredibly happy excited moment and her first thought is like you know oh my god what am i've already done it wrong i've only been pregnant for 23 minutes and already i'm like i've made mistakes well it's it's also great because and and i think this is something that is valid for anyone out there who's trying to be healthy as a as a pregnant woman i'm assuming that there there are so many judgments and so you're drinking a cup of coffee thinking i like coffee and Based on the data I've seen, it's okay, but then there's all of these judgments, then there's the guilt, is it even worth drinking the cup of coffee if anyone sees me? And then we haven't even got into alcohol, which I want to get into. Mm-hmm. But but um, I, I have a favor to ask of you, and yes. we have to do this on the hush-hush. So mm-hmm. Paris just emailed me a list of things that she wants me to ask you. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, why don't I just call her? And I'm not going to tell her that we are we are talking right now because I don't know that she formally wants to be a part of this podcast. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to okay. call her and just see if she okay. has any questions that she has for you. Is that cool? Yeah, that's cool. All right. I'm going to try to patch her in here. Hey, it's me. Oh, hi. I figured it might be, but I didn't recognize the number. Yeah, I'm calling you from the podcast bay. I have a bad signal with my cell phone. So I oh, okay. am, um, I'm sitting here trying to come up with the best questions to ask Emily. And I know that you have so many. So what are a few of the most important ones you want me to ask her? Hold on. Let me go grab my laptop. Sleep training is probably the main one just hey, because pa- everyone hold, has hold a different... On. Hold on one second. Okay. What are a few of them you really want me to ask? Can you hi, Paris? Oh, hi. 
Hi. Is that Patty? Hi. So, Paris, I conferenced you in. It's Emily. Is this on the podcast? No, it's just us hanging out because I knew you oh wanted to God. ask some questions. I was going to murder you. <laughs> Honey, I would never do that to you. Ever. I was literally going to murder you. <laughs> Hi, Emily. It's Paris. Hi, Paris. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I love your book. I'm, oh, I have thank a tendency you. to WebMD myself into um, craziness, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so our friend sent us your book, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I, I think my anxiety probably went down by 90%. you got to avoid WebMD. <laughs> Don't get yeah, on there. It's, <laughs> it's a dangerous little rabbit hole. Um, and can but, I just – can I throw out there that rightly so, Emily, she does not trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Not, you don't, your incentives are poor. She does. She does trust me, actually. But but it's it's good to be able to reinforce. Like you know what? That's what Emily said. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's so true. Because I mean, obviously, the first thing you think when you get pregnant is, oh my gosh, remember last weekend when we were drinking? And then I read that chapter of your book, and I was like, okay, <laughs> that's better. <laughs> um, and hey, hey Paris, we just up. talked about sushi too. And the night you realized you, you were pregnant. Yes. Okay. Sushi's great. I told him. <laughs> You're believing me now, Josh? Ah, of course, honey. But what, what are some of the other questions that you have? So mainly, I guess now as it's getting closer, I just don't really know what to do with the human. So I'm wondering, and also based on your experience as a mom, what um, everyone talks about sleep training. I quite frankly don't even really know what that means. But what um, what does from your research and from your personal experience, is there something that works the best with a newborn that you've seen? So, okay. So I think with a very little newborn, like you just got to try to like survive. Um, (laughs) You know, like the first, like, you know, people like the first two or three weeks, like you just, it's just like, it's just like all hands on deck insanity. Uh, And, and there's like nothing you can do wrong basically so you know i mean of course there's many things you do wrong but it's not like people are like oh you don't want them to get in a habit or this like there's no habit you know it's just like it like survival um once you start getting to you know like a like a month two months then i think the thing i will tell you for me for us the thing that was most useful uh was to like try to move like think about what we wanted the schedule to look like and then like sort of try to move there. Um, and so like we had like a bedtime, like even with like particularly my second kid, cause we like already had a schedule with the first kid. So we were like, okay, bedtime is like seven o'clock and we're going to like, even though of course, like it could take a long time to get him to sleep, whatever. And really he was like waking up every 90 minutes. So what does that even mean for it to be bedtime? But we were like, okay, no, it's seven o'clock. Like, you take a bath and then we put your pajamas on and we read you a book, you know, and like hold, I like hold my one month old and be like, here's a book, you know, and then like feed you. And then we're going to like pretend it's bedtime. And, um, and, and, you know, then have some like wake up time, like at six 30 in the morning. I mean, of course he was up all the time in the middle of the night, but just like having this idea that that's where we're going. And that made right. it much easier than Later, when we wanted to sleep train, it was much easier to be like, okay, that's how we're going to, we're going to kind of do it around that schedule. 
So that makes sense. We're just having an objective and just like trying to get there through zombie land. Exactly. Okay. Like I have something in your mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, when did you start doing the cry it out thing, if at all? Because I'm very, very interested in that. I'm, I'm, I think we're probably going to do that. <laughs> she, she lets me cry it out every night and it Absolutely. works for me. So, uh, <laughs> will it work for our son? <laughs> it will work. So we did a little, we did some of this around like, I don't know, two and a half months, um, basically okay. to get him to go to sleep at the beginning of the night. And then yep. we had like a really elaborate system, which was basically to try to enforce like a long thing of sleep at the beginning. So it was like, we're going to leave the room and then we're not going to go back until, you know, midnight. Then we would, he would eat some after that. And so like the goal there was to get him to like go to sleep at the beginning of the night, but not to expect that he could sleep all the way through. Cause like babies can't sleep for that long at that right. time. And then eventually we sort of like kind of, a few months later, just let him cry a little bit in the middle of the night. But that actually wasn't such a big deal. It was like that first, that first thing was the hardest thing. Cause then they're kind of like learning to do it, but you could do that, you know, like 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. That's helpful. Did you guys keep um, either of your kids in the room with you? Um, and if, if not, at what point did you transfer them out of your room? Yeah, we kept my son in the room with us maybe, okay. like, I mean, like, maybe for, like, a few weeks. Um, okay. But honestly, it was, like, so I really, like, my daughter, not at all. Like, we, I basically, my husband cannot sleep if the kids are in the room. Uh, so yeah. for the first, like, three weeks of our son's life while he was in the room, my husband slept in the attic. And, and then eventually it was like, I got to, like, I got to trade, you know, like, I want the husband back, I want the baby out, and then we put him in his own room. Yeah, we're trying to figure out who's going to get booted out of the two of us, whether or not I take over the master or he does. The, <laughs> yeah, we put, put him in the attic on, like, an air mattress. It's, like, it's sort of, like, an only partially finished attic, and he was on an right. air mattress, and it would, like, it would like every three days, we'd have to, like, tape up the air mattress because we get, like, a hole from these, like, exposed nails. Honestly. Yeah. Do you that. know what? That's actually pretty equal, though, if you think about it, because, you know. I totally agree. By himself. Yeah. Maybe that's what yeah. we'll do. We'll just find a really uncomfortable place for you <laughs> Well, what, what Paris is failing what Paris is failing to allude to is we're we're currently moving into a more kid-friendly neighborhood and moving into a place where I am above the garage putting together a man cave. And nice. uh I, I don't know. <laughs> I think we're going to end up fighting over is it a woman cave or a man cave? <laughs> and, I think you know, it's kind of a Cave. It's a person cave. Yeah, but it, but it's a baby cave. But anyway, yeah. is, is is a lot of this stuff? And I really applaud Paris for she's done such a good job of thinking through everything. And I'm probably that typical lazy father to be who it's going to be good. You know, it's but in reading your book, it seems like most of the data with all not all of these things, but most of them is what works for you and the yeah. baby and don't stress too much about there being a right or a wrong when it comes to sleep training. And does one parent sleep in a separate room? It, isn't it really figuring out what works for you and not, and, and if it's slightly different than what your book says, it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important thing is actually to just like make a decision about what you're going to do rather than what that decision is. You know, and stick to it. So I think that's like, that's the thing that makes people unhappy 
is this like you know thing where like every like either we don't agree or like every day we're trying a different thing um you know if you want to sleep train great if you don't want to sleep train like also fine you want the baby in the room great you don't want the baby in the room also fine uh but you know the the kind of like fighting about it every day that's the thing where people get really unhappy so i think it's a sort of funny combination of like you should think carefully about these things but not because it's actually that important what you decide just that you should think about them so you have a decision that you can implement and you like feel happy about okay do you feel that way about because i haven't read crib sheet yet travis has it with him um i'm gonna read that next but he said I wasn't lying, was- Emily, when I told you we're fighting over your books. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, are. Like our copy. <laughs> we literally are. <laughs> we have different pages marked in different places. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> but he was mentioning he was because I think it was the first time he'd actually realized that we're gonna have to take care of a human pretty soon. Um, and he was like, "Well, I always thought you swaddled, but apparently, I don't even know if you swaddle anymore." <laughs> Um, no, you should swaddle. Okay, you should swaddle, but it's just yeah. that it could cause problems later. No, no, it's just that, that if you if there's if you swaddle their hips too tightly, that could okay. be a, a thing. But you should swaddle and just get one of these blankets, and and the blankets let their legs move around. You got to swaddle. Okay. Get a miracle blanket and swaddle. Okay. My new Miracle nickname, blame. my my new Done. nickname, Paris, is Travis Swaddle All Day Long Stork. I'm going to get so good at swaddling. I've I've looked at videos online. I'm pumped. I even had the swaddle contest on on the doctors, um, where they they had the mannequin pee on me. But I'm all, I, honey, I'm all over the swaddling. I'm so excited. I love swaddling babies. The last time I've tried it is like four years ago, and I, I, it, it was very hard for me. I don't know why. I'm sure it's not a difficult task, but I remember it was very challenging for me. Because <laughs> they move so much. Yes, you need the special swaddles with the like like a lot of fabric and like an instruction manual. Yep, yep, and all the videos. Velcro. All right, well, hey, Paris, so... We're going to have to start the formal podcast yeah. here in a minute. Is there anything else you want me to cover? And and I can... Do you have my list that I sent you? The uh, four pages? It is not a list. It is uh, It is four pages and there, everyone can... I've highlighted what I felt was most important. Four pages. And yeah. yes, I have them, Paris. Okay, I'm glad you have them. Then no, we're we will be here for ten hours <laughs> before we get through it. You won't have a shortage of things to talk about. That is for sure. No, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and thank you for your book. It helped me a lot, and I'm now sending it to my pregnant mom friends because there's definitely a lot of like pressure to do everything perfectly, and I'm just not a robot. So <laughs> thank you so much. All right, you guys. All right, honey, I'll I'll call you after. Okay, bye. That was fun. She seems great. I'll tell her after the fact that it it actually <laughs> that it's <laughs> that I'll get I'll get her formal permission, but she get her formal permission. Yeah, after I, I want to send you picture or, or email you all of the talking points, and but what I wanted to do, and, and I think this is important because I, I would love to pull back a little bit from. We've been talking about pregnancy and early childhood parenting, but I want to I want to expand on that because I was 
thinking a lot recently about the choices we make in everyday life and why we make the choices we make, to what extent we use math and economics to make wise decisions rather than willy-nilly decisions. And I think it's a tool that hopefully more people use if they realize that the tool will help you make better decisions. And when it comes to health, I've always said, if you're making the right decisions, you're probably going to live longer. Uh, back to parenting, your, your kid's probably going to live a longer, better life. And these decisions matter. And every, I, if I'm giving a talk, I'll say we're making thousands of health-related decisions every day. We just don't realize it. And they all add up. So I want to I, I wanna ask you, let's go back to coffee. And then I want to ask yeah. you about alcohol and maybe a few other things that people tend to use quite often. So coffee. Everyone always asks me, how much coffee is too much? Should I be drinking coffee? And, and usually what I tell people is coffee is the number one antioxidant source in America. Now, granted, that's probably because we have a pretty poor diet here. But, <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the, the, studies, the studies often show we can drink a fair amount of coffee and there's a potential cognitive benefit and the list goes on. In, when you're making decisions like that beyond just pregnancy – are you actually putting your economics-based mind to work? And are you sitting there sometimes in the afternoon? You know what? I've, I've had three cups today or four cups. I don't. How many do you, cups do you have in a given day? Probably about four. And four are these four extra-large Starbucks coffees? No, or these? no, no. I have I have a very specific routine. So I have a, like a coffee in the morning, and then I probably have maybe like a coffee and a half in the morning, just like with milk. And then I have two espressos at different times in the day. And then you, yeah, you know what? I, I, I confess I do, I do it a similar way. I have coffee in the morning and then actually right now I'm getting really fancy. I'm drinking a soy latte. Soy latte. Oh my God. It's not oat milk though. Oat milk is the new, the new exciting milk. Oh, I'm, I'm all about that's soy. That's, that's the conversation <laughs> for another day. But when you're making those decisions and, and what I'm hoping to get out of this is for people who love coffee out there. And you're looking at the data again. I know a lot of your research was focused on on pregnant women, but do you look at the data and say, you know what, I'm I'm going to drink these about four cups a day because anything beyond that, the the risk is greater than the benefit. Do you do you use those decision making tools, or is it less um, yeah. formal? So I mean, I yeah, I try to use. I mean, there's sort of two answers to this. One is that I try to use decision making tools and evidence to make choices that go outside of my pregnancy and, and kids and kind of go into my regular, um, my regular life. I will say, you know, I think in the space of, of diet and exercise, you do think a lot about it and try to make good, good choices. It's actually really hard because I think the evidence is, you know, not always that good. So like coffee is a good example where, you know, I share your view that I think, you know, most of the evidence suggests that that in moderation, you know, and what exactly we mean by that is not clear, but that like some coffee is fine. But then you'll occasionally get these studies which say, well, you know, actually coffee is really bad for you. And, and you know, almost none of these things are kind of randomized and they have a lot of other biases. So it's really hard to learn about diet and really hard to learn about specific dietary components. Uh, and so I, I think that that's part of what I struggle with there. You know, you want to make good choices and you have a general sense that like 
eating a healthy diet is good and vegetables are good for you and shouldn't drink too much. Probably drinking some is okay. But, but that sort of fundamentally learning, like, should I eat kale versus should I eat dandelion greens? Like, the, the data is never going to really help us with those kind of questions. Well, tell me if the decisions that I use work from your mindset and, and strictly looking at it in terms of data. I have a very unique job, and, and I'm speaking more towards my job hosting television rather than as an ER doctor because I might one week have guests on the show who are vegan – and the next week, I might literally have someone on who's a carnivore, and they both will speak with no uncertainty that their their diet is the best. And what I what I do in my own life, and has worked for me, and I, I feel like my health is probably, hopefully, as good as it can be at forty eight years of age, and I still enjoy myself. But when there's a lot of mixed data. And we're not sure if something is good for you or not. If I don't love it, if it's, that's something I don't love, then I'm not going to do it or eat it. But if it's something like coffee, where I think overall the data is pretty supportive and I like it, if I start getting a little jittery, I know I've had too much coffee. I'm mm-hmm. done drinking it for the day. That's the decision I make. When it comes to oils, you know, coconut oil. You have some people who literally put coconut oil in everything, and then you have other people saying, oh my gosh, the saturated fat, there's potentially a connection with heart disease. We really don't know. Well, sometimes I'll use coconut oil because it's a it's, it has a high smoke point, and it's better in certainly dishes that may tend more toward the dessert side. But I'm not putting it in everything because I'm not convinced that it is, quote unquote, good for me. Canola oil, some people say, it's terrible. Some people say it's a wonderful, heart-healthy oil. Well, I like olive oil. I like avocado oil. So if there there are enough people who disagree, even if the data sways slightly one way or the other, if I don't love it, I don't eat it. Because my my mindset is let food be your medicine, but for it to be your medicine first, it can't be your poison. And so I'm curious if if that's a good way to look at things or not. Because I'm not... You know, I'm, I'm not sitting around every day. I look back at my old notes from Duke when I was a math major, and I, I, don't, re- I don't understand anything that I used to do. I literally look <laughs> at my notes, and I, I have no clue how my mind used to work like that. So I, I consider myself nowadays more of a medical doctor who's trying to disseminate this knowledge. I'm making these decisions less scientifically than you do. What, I think your your method for decision making is in some sense exactly right because what you're doing is is actually going beyond the data and saying okay I'm going to kind of combine the data with like my preferences which would be exactly what economists would say that you should do you should sort of think about okay if I really if I really like something then I'm gonna you know that's that's gonna weigh in the decision if I really like coffee you know I'm gonna look at the data. I think about, you know, is there something that would really push me to say, don't have this, you know, and there, there, there isn't. Uh, and because I like it, I really like it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have it. And my guess is if you became really convinced by something that like actually coffee is terrible for you, that you would, you know, you would change your, your behavior. But I think we have to like, we have to acknowledge, particularly in these spaces of, of diet and stuff that like actually, you know, how much you like things should, should be part of your decision. Cause like, you're trying to be 
happy and, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your life. Not, you know, your body is not a machine. Uh, you're supposed to be having a good time some, some of the time. And so I think, uh, I think that that is actually really, that's sort of the core of good decision-making. So, well, and yes, I, 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 I appreciate you corroborating the way I go about things because, yeah. you know, what I, what I try to do and what I hope people can realize is that you can make decisions based on good science without being an economist or a a math person. And sometimes it's considered boring, but it's interesting how getting back to food, I get really frustrated and getting back to your dandelion or kale example, let's throw spinach in there. You might be in a room and three people are vehemently arguing that spinach is better than kale. If I walk into that conversation, the next thing I will ask is, which one do you prefer to eat? And if you say they're about equal, then you know what? One night have kale, the next night have spinach. If you, I, I, I prefer spinach. So probably two thirds of the time I'm doing spinach. One third I'm doing kale seems to work. And it does, it's, it's, it's what I hope is rational decision-making, but it has been at times a struggle for me when I, I get in what are called these food fights where people will get, they'll be so obstinate and it's, it's people must eat this way, but human behavior, it, you're not going to eat what you don't want to eat. And, and, and you can tell me that the best thing for me to eat every single day, based on um, your research as an economist, are twigs and berries, but I'm not going to do, do that. I don't want yeah. twigs every day. <laughs> No, I mean, I feel like you'll, you'll see this with kids also that sort of like the realization that, you know, you're, you've got to kind of meet them where they are a little bit on, on foods and sort of put some, some structure in. But, you know, the idea that you're going to obsess about like, well, you know, spinach is better than, you know, better than kale. And so let me make sure my, you know, we eat, we eat a lot of spinach. It turns out that my kids are like obsessed with kale. They would never eat spinach. Um, particularly my younger one, but he will eat kale like every night of the week. Uh, and so, you know, we eat a lot of, we eat a lot of kale. Uh, and I, I'm really not going to go around worrying about whether, you know, spinach would be, would be better. I don't know that many kids who love kale. So, Oh, you know, that's not true because you, they're not, people are not putting it in chips. So if you oh, like, the we, kale ro- chips. we roast it in the oven, not, not like, like I get the, the raw kale, but we like roast it in the oven, little olive oil and salt. That's very kid friendly. How do your kids do with the alternative chips? So in our house, we pretty much only eat bean-based chips or we even eat now cauliflower-based chips. And it sounds bad, but for anyone who hasn't tried it, once you try them, they're great. And, and oh, no, get- my kids my kids love those. Those things are very good. The key is to just tell them that's what chips, like just like this is, yeah, these are chips. That's what it is. So in other words, I can keep shopping the way I shop now and Paris and I shop and then if we're going to eat chips, we just give those to our, our kid or kids and that's what they're going to eat. That is correct. Yeah. That's the, that, I've always scratched my head. What just, what happens if here I am the doctor who's always trying to promote a healthy lifestyle and eating well, and then I'm going to be the one who has the son who yells at me because all he wants are nuggets. <laughs> And then then I realized that that I'm going to give him fake nuggets. I'm going to give him some nuggets that are breaded with some whole, whole grain crumbs. And, (laughs) you know, you can, you have like, there's, there are things that almost all kids eat, but you actually have a lot of control um, over what your kids, 
what it could be based on how much you expose them to. Well, yeah. I, I and if I've learned nothing else, it's not only through this conversation, but again from your books, it's that uh, a relaxed. I think we can all afford to prepare ourselves, read books, know why you're making the decisions you're making as a, a new parent. But at the same time, we can also all relax a little bit because there are two. There, there's more than one way to parent, and. But before we close this out, I want to talk about two things. The first is mom shaming. And in all of your research, and and so much of it is there's two different ways to do things. Why do you think there is so much mom shaming now when it comes to these decisions? And we, you know, and and, and before you get into that, really quickly, alcohol. What, what, in all of your research, what is your, what's your recommendation with alcohol, uh, pregnancy, and then maybe beyond? So I think in, in pregnancy, we know that, uh, that drinking uh, excessively, drinking a lot is, is dangerous. Um, but when you dig into the question of, you know, is it okay to occasionally have, have a glass of wine, uh, you know, even a couple of times a week, we, we just don't see any evidence in the data that that causes, uh, negative consequences when you compare women who drink occasionally to women who don't drink at all. The kids, their kids look the same. Actually, if anything, they probably look a bit, uh, you know, the, the outcomes for, of the kids whose moms drink a little bit tend to be a bit, a bit better. Um, but, you know, we actually have a lot of data on that. There's a lot of evidence from, from Europe where, you know, drinking pregnancy is more, um, is more common. And so I think that the, that the sort of message of like, you know, absolutely none, uh, it's fine if you want to abstain, of course, but there isn't any evidence that, that drinking occasionally is, is dangerous. Um, and I go through that like in a lot more detail in the book and sort of try to talk about why we, why you might think otherwise, but you know, why the best data supports that. Well, and I think that may be one area where there's a lot of judgments and yeah. one other area that I, I think you do a good job of getting into the data and the science is there's a lot of mom shaming and judgments now also and parent shaming, quite frankly, with vaccines. And I thought you did a really nice job of laying out the data. Can can you just quickly tell everyone what you found and, and why you recommend what you recommend? Yeah. So in the book, I really I really try to go through, you know, what do we know about the, the risks of vaccines? So is it want to be clear? I, I think that it is a good idea to vaccinate. I think that that is actually very, very important. Um, but I think it's also a good idea to acknowledge the fears that people have and to acknowledge, you know, the idea that people are concerned about mm-hmm. this. I think we're too quick in public health to just tell people, oh, it's fine. You know, trust me, I'm, I'm an expert. Yep. But so I actually try to go through, you know, and point out that like, yes, yes, there are some risks to vaccines, but they are vanishingly tiny. And they almost all are about, you know, people who are immune compromised or not applicable to healthy kids. Uh, and so, so, you know, it's, it's not that there's nothing there, but, but there aren't any good reasons not to vaccinate. And I think we need to help people understand that, you know, in the hopes that more people will vaccinate because, um, particularly in a world in which actually vaccination rates have gone down a lot, you know, we do worry about losses of herd immunity and, and things like the measles epidemic. Well, and and I appreciate the deep dive you did on the science there. And I, I also applaud you. And it's something that is important. I get really angry. We were talking about food earlier where people will take a, a very 
malicious approach to anyone who doesn't eat the way they eat. I think also with vaccines, you know, you have to have the conversation and explain why you believe what you believe. And I think there's there's too much mudslinging that goes on in that space. And it kind of gets back to maybe it's with social media. Maybe it's with the fact that we're all so active, whether it's texting, social media, email. Um, we're all we're constantly seeing what everyone else is doing. And so we're often choosing what to do based on what the crowd is doing, not necessarily what you feel is right, because there is, there tends to be, if you're not following the crowd, you're there, there's the shame, there's the guilt. And I think we should all try to be a little better about making the best decision for us. That's an informed decision. And if you have all the data, if you have all of the, science. And, and again, you don't have to be a scientist to get this. You can lean on people who are um, smarter than me, <laughs> like you, <laughs> to, to, to get some help with these things, to make the best decisions when it comes to your health and when it comes to the health of your kid. But before I let you go, this was the last thing I wanted to ask you. As a soon-to-be father, what can I do between now and our due date to be supportive because that's this is a role I've never had. I, I can I've seen a lot in my life as an ER doctor. I've seen a, I've seen probably almost everything you can possibly see. Much of it bad, some of it good. Is there anything in your studies where there there's a few things that people can do to to support their loved one as they're they're going through pregnancy and, and near the end? Is there anything like Paris has already said under no circumstances. Under no circumstances are you going below my shoulder in the delivery room. You know, so there's already ground yeah. rules, but but yeah. along the way, is there anything that that you can recommend that I that I try to do to be to be more helpful than just getting in the way? I think the most, um, I mean, other than practicing your swaddle, it sounds like you're on top of that. Oh, I'm um, on top of that. I am not worried about that. the swaddle. The um, diaper changes, I mean, I maybe. The, <laughs> I think the most important thing is in the um, you know in the space around birth. There, it is both very can be very scary, and there are a lot of um, of decisions which are which can be hard to can be hard to make um, both in the moment and before. So I think like being a being a partner who listens and helps Paris think through you know what she wants to do and then helps her implement that. I think that's probably the most when I sort of think back to like my husband was supportive in a lot of ways, but I think that was the piece. What I most appreciated, just him listening as we sort of talked about, okay, like, do I want to have an epidural? You know, should we have a C-section? Like those kind of choices. Um, I think he was just a really good sounding board and a really good, you know, person to sort of say, look, ultimately, this is your choice. Let me help you think about it. So I think that's something you can do. Well, I, I will do my best. And you can try. I you can, can try. try. And, and uh, if people, hey, that, that's all I can do. I, I I didn't mean to say that was my last question. Right before you joined me, you were teaching a class. What class? What class was it? Economics of social policy. So it's a class to undergraduates about social policies. We were talking about the U.S. education system today. You know what? There's a part of me that is incredibly jealous because I every time I go back to my alma mater and walk past the economics building. 
I think I think back to everyone thinks I'm crazy, but then I walk by the math building. I'm like, oh, those were such good days. Oh, such good magic, days. <laughs> magic and real analysis. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, and and I I just can't thank you enough for translating these con- complex topics and and making them easily digestible. And um, for anyone listening. It's Emily Oster. Her books are Expecting Better and Crib Sheet. Can we expect any any new books or ventures in the future? We will see. I just I'm about to launch a newsletter, uh, which we'll do like we'll do a little bit of you know updates on like new and data. Um, so that's my current plan, but we'll see about we'll see about some more books going forward. Well, congrats on all that, and uh, best of luck to you as you continue. Uh, with, with your family and teaching all those young undergrads uh, how to and, make better decisions. And good luck to you. I think you'll be a great dad. Hey, and, and honestly, I promise you that we will not bother you at midnight when we have questions. <laughs> <laughs> have a great one. Thanks so much. Emily. All right. Have a great day. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed listening. Do not forget to subscribe and download and tell your friends. I would love to build this community and continue to be all about authenticity, optimism, and hope. Uh, Looking forward to the next podcast. We'll see you soon. The Travis Stork Show podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.